Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an effort to understand former Vice President Pence's campaign strategy as he appears to be running against Donald Trump without explicitly condemning him for the January 6th insurrection which came close to costing Pence his life. Joining us is Tom Lobianco, national politics reporter for Yahoo News and formerly a Washington correspondent for Business Insider who covered Trump in the Republican Party, a longtime reporter who has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for the Associated Press, CNN and the Indianapolis Star. He's the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House and we will discuss his latest article at Yahoo News Pence tries to look forward in Washington's speech amid January the 6th tensions with Trump and attempting a rebrand for 2024, Trump focuses on cesspool of crime. Then we'll look into the rising tensions between China and the US over a planned trip to Taiwan by House Speaker Pelosi, which has exacerbated an already deteriorating relationship and placed the Biden administration in a position where cancelling the trip would be a sign of weakness in the face of Chinese threats, and going ahead with the trip would be reckless given the warnings from China's foreign ministry that they will take, quote, firm and resolute measures if Pelosi goes ahead with the trip. Joining us is Shelley Rigger, Professor of Political Science at Davidson College, who has been studying and visiting Taiwan for nearly four decades. She consults for the U.S. government on East Asian national security issues, and is the author of Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island Global Powerhouse, Politics in Taiwan, Voting for Democracy, and most recently, The Tiger Leading the Dragon, How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Rise. Then finally, we'll go to India to speak with Jayati Ghosh, who taught economics at Nehru University in New Delhi for nearly 35 years, and since January of 2021 has been a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She has authored 20 books, including The Making of a Catastrophe, COVID-19 and the Indian Economy, and When Governments Fail, COVID-19 and the Economy. In 2021, she was appointed to the World Health Organization Council on the Economics of Health for All, and most recently was appointed to the UN Secretary General's High-Level Advisory Board on Effective Multilateralism. We will discuss her article at The Guardian, There is a Global Debt Crisis Coming, and It Won't Stop at Sri Lanka. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now are Tom Lobianco, who is a national politics reporter for Yahoo News and formerly a Washington correspondent for Business Insider, who covered Trump and the Republican Party. A longtime reporter, he has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for the Associated Press, CNN, and the Indianapolis Star. And he's the author of Piety and Power Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. And his latest articles at Yahoo News are Pence Tries to Look Forward in Washington's Speech Amid January 6 Tensions with Trump and Attempting a Rebrand for 2024, Trump Focuses on Cesspool of Crime. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Lobianco. Thank you, Ian. Good to be back here, man. Well, thanks for joining us again, Tom. And you uh, were in Was- obviously in Washington yesterday covering the dueling um, <laughs> speeches. <laughs> The earlier one yeah. was f- with the uh, former vice president and uh, the later one with Trump. And there was quite a contrast. Uh, Trump said the country's going to hell. Our country yes. is going to hell. And uh, obviously Pence was a little more positive. But one of the quotes in your article that caught my eye was that you spoke with a uh, Trump advisor who basically said, you know, Pence has got no path forward. Is Mm-hmm. And that's the feeling I have. So what's motivating him? Where's he, where does he think he's heading? Well, a couple thoughts on that. Number one, um, you know, on that comment, 
And, and it's true, you know, that by all, by most conventional wisdom, it does seem that it's highly unlikely that Mike Pence would win the Republican nomination in 2024. I should also add to that, you know, look, we've, we write extensively about Tom Cotton and Mike Pompeo and Nikki Haley and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, and you know, any number of Republicans who are effectively the Dick Gephardt of this moment, you know, also rands that are still running <laughs> because they still got money to run. And um, they don't have a path, really. I mean, the only two people that seem to have a path in this moment, and again, all things in politics are temporal and are incredibly fluid, um, are Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And somebody as, you know, a, a player yet to be named, you know, somebody we haven't seen yet. You know, it's still very early in this. But a couple considerations around that. I mean, you know, number one, I mean, that it is an, it's an important comment. That's why, that's why I had it up there so high in the story. Um, because, it, it, you know, strip away the, the actual statement itself and look at who's saying it and where it's coming from. And it gives you a reflection on how Trump's operation is viewing Mike Pence. And, uh, you know, I wrote a story for Yahoo maybe like a month or two ago uh, about Pence and where he was, how he was positioning himself for 2024. And a, a Trump person told me that it's, you know, they, they see it inside, some of them at least, see it inside Trump's operation as a, as a revenge play because he cannot win. You know, this is only about screwing Trump over because Trump almost got him killed on January 6th. You know, depending on where you stand, it was purposeful or, you know, not purposeful. But the effect <laughs> is clear because we've seen it under testimony. We've seen it, you know, under oath. Now, the rioters came within 40 feet of Pence and his family and his, and his staff and his, his Secret Service agents and the Secret Service agents themselves feared for their lives. Um, so to me, it's almost like, it almost seems immaterial of whether he will win the nomination or not, because by all accounts, he's doing it. He has not announced that he's running for president. He has not announced formally that he's running against Donald Trump or anyone else for the Republican nomination, but he's not stopping. And I think, you know, this is one of the things I talk about with, you know, occasionally with some of my Republican sources, you know, strip away the severity, which is, I mean, when it comes to January 6th, it is a very hard thing to strip away the severity and the, and the heaviness and the, and the weightiness of this moment in American history. But if you can pull back and look just sheer at the sheer politics of it, and God knows that, you know, a presidential race is nothing if not sheer politics, this raw politic, real politic, um, what you see is no leverage over Mike Pence. There is nothing preventing him from running for president. There's nothing stopping him. You know, Trump played his card on January 6th. Trump no longer has any leverage over Pence. And Pence has every incentive to run, whether he will win or not. Um, so that's, I think that's where we are right now. I think that's what we're witnessing. But is that to say then, Tom LaBianca, that in a way Pence may be counting on, or at least he's the January 6th committee, if they indict Trump, is that what Pence is counting on? Or it certainly would be, it would open the door for him, wouldn't it? Well, you know, the feeling among, that you, you see in these polls and you see in the Republican focus groups, and you know, God knows these guys are nothing if not poll tested. Um, you know, Trump, especially Trump included, he, he, he dresses it up in, in different language, but he, he follows the polls just the same as all, all the other ones, um, is that Republicans, they like largely like Trump. They largely agree with his election lies, you know, from Italian satellites to Chinese thermostats to Rudy Giuliani in all his many iterations. Um, and they agree with him on that. And they still like Trump. But when you ask Republican voters, do they want Trump to run again, that number drops off significantly. And I think that's, you know, that's part of the calculation Trump's team has been making about making all this noise about him running for president now, trying to launch in the summer, which is a, a clearly a fleeting thing. We're almost to the end of summer. 
now. We've got one month left, give or take. And what you see there is that Trump is, it's fading. It's not, it's not a slide. It's not like a, it's not precipitous, but it's consistent. And you see voters, Republican voters saying that they like Trump, they like what he did, but they want somebody without all the baggage. They want Trump without the, without the BS. And the person occupying that space at this moment seems to be Ron DeSantis, because DeSantis, you know, attacks things with that combative language, but he's more careful. <laughs> I was talking with, um, I was at lunch with a couple of Republican operatives a, a little while ago, and um, one of them put it this way to me, and I laughed so hard. They said, it's like, you know, Trump, if, you know, if Trump doesn't like something, he just calls it fake news, no matter what it is, because he, you know, and he, and he doesn't have any evidence to back it up or not. But when Ron DeSantis does it, he has the receipts to back it up, usually. And that's what they're looking for. And when it comes to Pence in this situation, you know, I'm not sure that Pence plays in that lane or plays, you know, he's not a combative person. His lifeline and his raft, politically speaking, is abortion, is anti-abortion, it's, you know, pro-life, however you, you, you want to coin it, but the, you know, the anti-abortion uh, movement, that's his, that, that is absolutely his place right now. And he is owning that space right now. Um, I don't know if it's enough, but again, you know, it might not have to be enough. You know, he might just do this just to do this. Um, there's nothing stopping him. Well, it does seem that uh, the Murdoch family may be uh, dumping Trump because mm -hmm. the Wall Street Journal's editorial board recently wrote, character is revealed in a crisis and Mr. Pence passed his January the 6th trial. Mr. Trump utterly failed his. Yes. So is that a signal that, uh, I mean, Pence is, he may be running against Trump, but he's tied to Trump in terms of yes. history, right? And and you yes. just mentioned that his biggest card to play is abortion or anti-abortion. So he's if he's going to be a culture warrior, um, it looks like a lot of the, the Republican culture wars are, are backfiring, even though <laughs> in his speech yesterday, he didn't he say something about we stopped killing the babies or something well, I, let me save the babies save america save the, save yeah. the baby save america <laughs> yeah that's a that, that's a new part of his stump speech i think it's i've heard that like three or four times um <laughs> so yeah that's a that's a new pensism that and waiting in line for 25 minutes at olive garden which i having lived in indiana for a while and, and knowing where pence lives in indiana pence lives in a super ritzy suburb of indianapolis um, which I don't even know if they have Olive Gardens up there in Carmel, Indiana. Um, that would surprise me. You know, they're more, it's, that's more like a, um, God, what's the, um, like, what's like a next level Olive Garden? You know, I was going to say right. like Bertucci's, but you know, that would date me. And, uh, <laughs> I well, but, still but, think but, Bertucci's but, is fancy. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. But tell us uh, what, what he said, because I'm not familiar with this Olive Garden analogy. I'm so. sorry. 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 I was getting ahead of myself there. Um, here's another one of his stump speeches about how he's just a normal guy. again. Another, you know, it's the new line. He used it yesterday again at the speech in DC. He's just a normal guy. He puts, you know, hundred dollars gas in his truck, just like every other, you know, suffering American. Um, and he has to wait in line to get, you know, 25 minutes just to get a table at Olive Garden, just I like see. every other American. Oh, boo you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, to me, it's like, I don't, and you know, it kind of reminds me, I wrote about this in the book. You know, he, he does these, like, um, he does these, uh, it's not, you know, misdirection. I mean, you know, Trump flat out lies, you know, there's, it's very easy to see through that. And Pence is more classic in his spin and misdirection. Um, and it's, you know, I don't know if you'll lie or mistruth, or whatever you want to call it, of omission. It's kind of the same way he used to talk about growing up with a cornfield in his backyard. That used to be a standard part of his stump speech. He's kind of toned that down recently. You know, he used to make it sound like he grew up on a farm in southern Indiana, which he did not. Now, you could intuit that from somebody saying that, but he was always being moved into the the newest suburb, the newest subdivision in Columbus, Indiana, as it ate into the cornfield. So everybody had a cornfield in their backyard if you were suburban, middle class Columbus, Indiana back then. And that the Olive Garden anecdote to me 
has that similar feel because I just don't know of many olive gardens up there. And, and in Indiana, you don't have to wait very long to get anything. I mean, it's pretty, it's one of the nice things about living in Indiana. You know, you don't have to call ahead of time. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> right. Well, tell me then, just in the last few minutes, I wanted to get to the other dueling speech yesterday in Washington, and sure. that is Trump's speech before the America First Policy Institute, which are essentially all of the Trump cabinet in waiting, right? The government in waiting. Um, (laughs) And uh, they obviously leaned on him not to do his grievance tour, and it looks like he stuck to the script, but he made a couple of forays into slightly off script, right? I mean, uh, he did say about the January 6th committee, they really want to damage me so I can't get back to work for you. And I don't think that's going to happen. So what else did he say? He, he went off on a riff about <laughs> yes, transgender did. sports, did he not? And yeah. talked about a man named Alice. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, I often wonder what Johnny Cash would make out of all this, right? A boy named Sue. I don't think he would side with Trump on this. That's not the impression I got from him. But anyway, um, it's, you know, Trump did this thing. Um, and he was very good at staying on um on the teleprompter. And, you know, we all knew this from having watched his 2016 campaign, his time in the White House, 2020 campaign. When Donald Trump gets in trouble or he feels like he's in trouble, he behaves. And in this case, behaving is sticking to the script. And the script, you know, is very purposeful, obviously, is painting America as some kind of hellscape, you know, as, quote, a cesspool of crime you know, while not talking about number one, his culpability in January 6th, you know, we, you know, not the least of it. Um, but also why that didn't, why that didn't stop when he came in the first time, you know, cause remember his first speech was the, his, 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 his uh, inaugural speech. He uh, berated quote, you know, American carnage. And so why didn't it stop? I mean, but of course, logic rarely applies in this, in these situations. Um, but, you know, you could see him get off off script and he kind of started getting into it. You know, he started getting riled up because, he, you know, he feeds off the crowd and he plays off of what 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 they like. And that's why he does these rallies constantly. Um, and um, they reacted to the joke about women and, you know, women's sports and transgender athletes. So he starts going on that and he's talking about, you know, he can't lift 218 pounds. But this, you know, this girl named Alice, oh, she can absolutely lift 218 pounds. And what was fascinating to me was that he starts getting into it, his engine is revved, and he can't help himself because that, after that extended riff, and everyone's laughing and they're playing into it with him, um, after that extended riff is when he goes on the grievance tour again. He says, oh, they're out to get me. They're out to get me. This January 6th committee, it's another witch hunt, et cetera, et cetera. He can't help himself. And I think this is his fundamental weakness. And I think this is why you know, if you look at the polling that says voters, generally speaking, don't want Joe Biden or Donald Trump again in 24. And that might be what we end up having um, in a general election. But it, you get this sense from the polling in particular across the parties that people are just over this, like all of it. They just don't want any more of it. You know, but Biden falling off a bike or Donald Trump leading a coup because he had a, you know, a, a two month long hissy fit. Um, you know, whatever. And that's the sense that you get from the voters. And you could see that's what Trump's advisors were trying to get him to do. But again, he gets worked up and he's like, oh, it's time for me to, it's like, you know, the girl named Al, the girl named, the boy named Alice. And now, oh, these terrible people on the January 6th committee. He can't help himself. And I think that's one reason it's, it's a substantial weakness for him. And, you know, the other Republicans see that. That's why they're, they're all positioning themselves right now. Nobody's holding back. Well, I thought, though, that was Trump's main strategy, was to announce early to foreclose the possibility of the others. Because if yeah. you once Trump announces, and if you're a Republican uh, contender like DeSantis, you're going to go up against the MAGA people, aren't you? Isn't that, what he's, <laughs> isn't that the strategy? It was. It, it, I think it is. But I don't know that that actually works anymore. I mean, if he had done that last year, you know, after the, you know, after McCarthy went down to kiss the ring, you know, three weeks, three or four weeks after January 6th, if, and basically rehabilitated Trump, um, if 
if Trump had you know captured that moment, that might have been true back then. But it's just so much has happened since then. And you know, the other part of this too is that voters are just not dialed into Trump's singular grievances. I mean, that was the problem with the, every time he kept talking about 2020. Um, voters are they care about gas prices, right? That's why you know. For as stiff and as wooden as Mike Pence is on the as a, as a politician on the trail, you know he's a really great gauge of where voter sentiment is. You could just pick through his speech. You know he talks about pumping gas and paying a lot of money for that gas. It's not the greatest delivery. It's not the you know it's not the most compelling anecdotes in the world. But I mean he is hitting the notes where the polling is and that's not where trump is so uh, you know i don't i don't think trump has anything locked down at this moment it doesn't feel that way to me well tom labianca um (laughs) i hope you're right (laughs) (laughs) and i appreciate you joining us here today (laughs) thanks ian thank you so much man and again, I may speak with Tom LaBianca, who's a national politics reporter for Yahoo News and formerly a Washington correspondent for Business Insider, who covered Trump in the Republican Party, a longtime reporter who has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for the Associated Press, CNN, and the Indianapolis Star. He's the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. And his latest articles at Yahoo News are Pence Tries to Look Forward in Washington Speech Amid January 6 Tensions with Trump and Attempting a Rebrand in 20, for 2024, Trump Focuses on Cesspool of Crime. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into rising tensions between China and the U.S. over a planned trip to Taiwan by House Speaker Pelosi. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Shelley Rigger, professor of political science at Davidson College, who has been studying and visiting Taiwan for nearly four decades. She consults for the U.S. government on East Asian national security issues and is the author of Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island Global Powerhouse, Politics in Taiwan, Voting for Democracy, and most recently, The Tiger Leading the Dragon, How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Rise. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shelley Rigger. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us. And the proposed visit to Taiwan by Speaker Nancy Pelosi has become a bit a thorny problem. Uh, A week ago, President Biden said, more or less the Pentagon told him it wasn't a very good idea but nevertheless, she appears to be going ahead, and now we're learning that she consulted or invited Representative Michael McFall, the top Republican on the Foreign Affairs Committee, along with the chairman of the committee, Gregory Meeks, to join her on the trip. So it looks as if she's planning on taking the trip, but aren't we in a situation now if she cancels the visit it would make the U.S. look weak and China triumphant. And uh, if she goes, it could be reckless. Well, I think she has not yet announced the visit, right? My understanding as of today is that she is still saying, you know, I don't expose my travel plans in advance. So, you know, I don't think it's absolutely a done deal. But moreover, you know, there's a kind of logic here that I think we really need to be careful about and aware of, which is not wanting to allow Beijing to control our actions means that if Beijing says we don't like it, and we feel obligated then to do it, we're allowing Beijing to control our actions, right? Whether we we, say, we say, okay, I won't go because they don't want me to, or I must go because they don't want me to. Either way, we're letting Beijing decide for us what is the right course of 
action. And I would really like to see American leaders deciding for themselves based on U.S. interests and the interests of Taiwan what they're going to do and not respond to the PRC statements either by uh, giving into them or deciding that, well, even if it's not a good idea, now I have to go to prove that I'm not going to concede to Beijing's demands. So could this be diffused then by the upcoming uh, phone talk between uh, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden? I'm not sure when it's, they say it's within a week or 10 days. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, a week ago, uh, Wednesday, President Biden said that the military thinks it's not a good idea right now for Speaker Pelosi to go. So could he diffuse it, I mean, in his conversations with Xi? I mean, what? in other words, I, your point's well taken. I'm just wondering what the recourse is. I don't think that this can be resolved by Biden and Xi necessarily because neither Biden nor Xi is encouraging this trip, right? They, they are in agreement that it is unnecessary and uh, unhelpful at the moment. So, you know, I suppose that they could sit together and convey that they do not want to continue to run U.S.-China relations into the ground over uh, kind of symbolic gestures, but whether or not the two of them working together can uh, create an off-ramp for the speaker, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that the decision to not ever release a final intention to make this happen is up to the speaker. So why is she doing it then if it's causing so many problems already? I mean, her constituency is in San Francisco. I don't know whether that's its local politics. I mean, my understanding is that the way that the Chinese leadership see it is that she's the third most powerful figure in the United States, and therefore this is a, a real problem for them. This is an endorsing a policy that's a red line for them. Yeah. I mean, you know, they don't have to get exercised about this. They could have said, yeah, Nancy Pelosi, whatever. Members of Congress go to Taiwan frequently, and it's not something that the PRC ever wants to see happen, but it's not something that they fly off the handle about. So, you know, partly this is a crisis of Beijing's making. They decided that this was going to be a red line. Nature does not ordain where the red lines are, right? Uh, governments choose where to put their red lines. And so I think they unwisely picked this fight. At the same time, though, I honestly cannot tell you what Speaker Pelosi's motivation might be for going, because I don't see any good reason why she needs to do it now. I don't think it is a, an electoral motivation. You know, whether she goes or doesn't go is not going to make a bit of difference in her district. I don't think it is an issue that's going to motivate any voters in the general election for and against Democrats. I, I honestly, at this point, I think, oh, well, I won't speculate about her motivations because I do not understand them. I see no benefit to Taiwan, no concrete, meaningful, non-symbolic benefit to Taiwan. I see the visit as potentially furthering a very dangerous and worrisome deterioration in USPRC relations and potentially endangering Taiwan as a result. So why she is doing it, you will have to ask someone else that question. And again, I'm speaking with Shelley Rigger, who's a professor of political science at Davidson College, who has been studying and visiting Taiwan for nearly four decades. She consults for the U.S. government on East Asian national security issues and is the author of Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island Global Powerhouse, Politics in Taiwan, Voting for Democracy, and most recently, The Tiger Leading the Dragon, How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Rise. So, as you point out, I mean, the Chinese are reacting uh, almost hyperventilating over this. Their military spokespeople have made sort of veiled threats about intercepting her aircraft. 
and this has prompted the Pentagon to say that they are marshalling aircraft and ships and surveillance assets. So that in itself seems really dangerous, doesn't it? I mean, it may be a bit at a rhetorical level, but the idea that both sides are planning on moving to do something about her aircraft, either to intercept it or to protect it, it makes you wonder why it is the Chinese decided to make an issue out of this trip. Well, so that's a fair question, and I don't know. I have no better access to the inner workings of Xi Jinping's mind than I do to the inner workings of Nancy Pelosi's mind. But I would simply point out that having drawn this line in the sand, the PRC is not likely to back away from it without some kind of reassurance from the United States. And when you describe the situation as you just did with military and and counter-military preparations on the two sides, you have to ask yourself, what is the benefit that is so enormous of making this trip that it outweighs the incredible risk and the incredible escalation intention that inevitably will follow. And that is something that I have not heard anyone explain. So when people are asked, why is it important to for the speaker to make this trip? They say, well, to show support for Taiwan. Is this the only way to show support for Taiwan? Is this a meaningful way to show support for Taiwan? Does this in any way enhance Taiwan's security? And that question or that series of questions is not being answered. We are focusing on, well, now that the PRC has decided that they don't like it, to not go would be backing down instead of asking what was was it ever a good idea to go in the first place? And if it's not a good idea, if it's not necessary, if it's not actually promoting U.S. interests or the interest of Taiwan in a concrete, measurable, serious way, then the fact that the PRC doesn't like it is not why you don't go. The reason you don't go is because it's not necessary to go. And being forced to go because Beijing doesn't want you to is just as much allowing yourself to have your decisions dictated by Beijing as deciding not to go because Beijing doesn't want you to go would be. So we on the US, US government and US politicians need to decide what to do based on the interests of the United States of America and our allies and partners, not based on some kind of a competition for toughness with our non-ally, non-partner nations. So given that it's difficult to understand what's going on with Xi Jinping and also with Nancy Pelosi, as you mentioned, uh, Shelley Rigger, is the war in Ukraine some kind of subtext here? I mean, China has got to be watching this war. First of all, they've they've taken Russia's side in it, which is not popular for them. And the U.S., I think, made a mistake, and, and so did NATO, by not framing this war in Ukraine. They've framed it as a, a struggle for democracy against a, a ruthless um, an attack by a neighbor. But it might have resonated more with China and other countries if they made it an issue of sovereignty or protecting the sovereignty of a nation against an invasion. But that aside, what do you understand the war in Ukraine is doing to Chinese thinking? Because there's some concerns that maybe Russia is giving China a kind of cover to be more aggressive over Taiwan. But on the other hand, China must be looking at what Russia's doing there and how it's not doing well, and that may be giving them pause. I'm just yeah. you know, trying to figure this out. What do you think? Sure. I would say that you're right, that uh, the the Russian experience in Ukraine is certainly sobering for any 
government that might have imagined that doing 20th century warfare in the 21st century was going to be easy, right? This kind of full scale, uh, we made a decision to invade another country and here we go kind of um, warfare is not easy. It's not even easy when you have a land path into the, you know, and you have, you almost surround on three sides the country that you're invading. So it definitely is, uh, has to be kind of sobering for leaders in Beijing. And certainly they are seeing the Western allies, the US, Japan, European countries, and so on, unifying to an unexpected degree with re with regard to the Ukraine war that, you know, the idea that the West was in terminal decline and, you know, we would fall apart and, and all that kind of stuff is actually um, not bearing out in this moment. At the same time, though, I think one thing that you know, Americans focus very heavily on the possibility that China may decide to take military action against Taiwan. And that's a possibility that hangs out there all the time. But what I think we fail to consider is the degree to which the PRC government worries about being forced to respond to a situation in the Taiwan Strait when it is not ready. So they want to take the initiative. They want this this conflict to happen only at when it suits them uh, for their timing. And so and what they see is, you know, if you go in prematurely, you can find yourself in a really difficult situation. So what I see or or a possibility that I think may ex exist and needs to be seriously considered by US policymakers when they're thinking about what to do about China is that China is operating from a position of maybe fear is too strong a word, but seeking to deter behavior by the US and others that could create a situation where China doesn't get to choose the timing of its own action. So, you know, I think what they see, and not just with the Pelosi visit, but with a series of actions by the U.S. Um, and actors within the U.S., people like Mike Pompeo, who are not part of the U.S. government, but that seem to be, from a PRC perspective, persons of influence in the U.S., what they see is they see Americans becoming very active in separating Taiwan from the PRC and encouraging potentially some people within Taiwan to perhaps make a, a leap for formal separation, uh, formal independence. And that is something that a PRC government just can't afford not to respond to. So they don't want that to happen, right? And so what they see is they see the US encouraging actions that are gonna force them to be in a war when they're not ready. And then they look at Ukraine and they see, you know, the Russians thought they were ready and they're up against it like this. So, you know, I think we gotta consider the possibility that they're afraid that they're gonna be left without choices and that's gonna be really bad for them. So just in the last couple of minutes, uh, you mentioned Mike Pompeo, he tweeted out today, Nancy, I'll go with you. I'm banned in China, but not freedom loving Taiwan. See you there. So if this becomes a, a Republican issue in our polarized politics, that's also <laughs> putting more pressure on Nancy Pelosi to go. But Okay, these are people who are putting a country, 24 million human beings, in between their own desire for political gain within the United States and the, the desire of their parties to win on this issue and the second largest power in the world, right? They will, we, it is totally wrong for American officials to use Taiwan as an instrument of conflict, either within US politics 
or in the strategic competition with the PRC. So, you know, if Taiwan becomes a pawn on the chessboard and ends up like Ukraine, people like Mike Pompeo will bear some responsibility for the destruction that will ensue from that. Well, Shelley Rigger, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Shelley Rigger, who's a professor of political science at Davidson College, who has been studying and visiting Taiwan for nearly four decades. She consults for the U.S. government on East Asian national security issues and is the author of Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island Global Powerhouse, Politics in Taiwan, Voting for Democracy, and most recently, The Tiger Leading the Dragon, How Taiwan Propelled China's Economic Rise. We're going to get a brief station break. We're back discussing the coming global debt crisis and how it won't stop at Sri Lanka. Well, come on and let me know Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from India is Jayati Ghosh, who has taught economics at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi for more than 35 years, and since January of 2021 has been a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She has authored 20 books, including The Making of a Catastrophe, COVID-19 and the Indian Economy, and When Governments Fail, COVID-19 and the Economy. And in 2021, she was appointed to the World Health Organization Council on the Economics of Health for All, and most recently was appointed to the United Nations Secretary General's High-Level Advisory Board on Effective Multilateralism. And she has an article at The Guardian, there is a global debt crisis coming, and it won't stop at Sri Lanka. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jayati Ghosh. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And my understanding is that there's something like, or at least according to the IMF, there's something like 38 countries that could follow the path of Sri Lanka. And of course, prior to Sri Lanka, Zambia also went into default. Yes, I think there are about five or six countries currently in official default, and there are many more tottering on the brink. But I just want to highlight that, you know, default is the least of the problems. Default is when maybe the global financial system notices it. But we are talking about, I would say, as many as 100 countries facing extreme economic distress. And many of them are going to then translate into debt crises, of a kind that we have not seen since the 1970s, and which could have much worse political and social repercussions. And how much is the war in Ukraine exacerbating this situation? Is it a factor? Well, it's certainly a factor in the sense that it was a catalyst in the big price rises in food and fuel. But I do want to emphasize that the supply shortages created by the war are a small part of the recent price increases. A much bigger role has been played by profiteering of large corporations, including agribusiness and fuel companies, and financial speculation in the commodities markets. We are ignoring these when these are responsible for more than half the price increase. So when you, we hear talks of a, a debt trap, usually associated with the Chinese, is there also another kind of debt trap that you're just talking about? with these big agribusiness companies is how does it work and why do, why do these countries become so indebted? So, it, it, Okay, so it's no. The agribusinesses and the fuel companies are responsible for the price rise. In other uh -huh. words, the reason we're getting such a price explosion for oil and food and things like that is because companies are raising their prices beyond what they need to do for their costs. Okay, so that's the inflation part. The inflation has come at a time when many developing countries, which had open economies and were trying to attract foreign capital and therefore took on debt, they have already faced a problem of the pandemic. They lost export revenues, they lost tourism revenues, they lost remittances, and then they were more and more unable to fund their imports. 
But the background to this is that all of developing world was encouraged to have these open capital accounts to attract foreign capital. The IMF, the G7, everybody sang along with this tune saying, please open your capital account and attract foreign capital. When the global financial crisis hit, as you know, in the US, then monetary policy in the US and Europe became incredibly loose, very, very low, close to zero interest rates and lots of liquidity sloshing around the globe. So this liquidity also found its way into developing countries, so-called emerging markets and frontier markets. All these countries, therefore, were encouraged to take on a lot more debt than they could afford to repay. This was a problem building up over the last 12, 13 years. And then, of course, the pandemic made it, brought it to a sort of crisis point where it really became difficult for them to repay. In, when the pandemic struck, there was a moratorium agreed on debt. That is to say that countries were told you don't have to pay your interest right now. You can pay after a while, after a year, two years. But that doesn't stop the problem. It just rolls the can down the road and the can gets bigger and bigger. So now they have to repay all this debt and they can't. That's the basic problem. So as you can see, this is not a process that was created by one particular developing country. It's a global process created by the global financial architecture, encouraged by the IMF, the Davos World Economic Forum and the G7. And now that the problem has come home to roost and these countries are in the midst of an absolute perfect storm of, of distress from all sides, they're washing their hands and saying, oh, what can we do? It's all very sad. It's all very terrible, but it's not our problem. And again, I'm speaking with Jody Ghosh, who is in India. She has taught economics at Nehru University in New Delhi for more than 35 years and since January 2021 has been a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She has authored 20 books including The Making of a Catastrophe, COVID-19 and the Indian Economy and When Governments Fail, COVID-19 and the Economy and in 2021 she was appointed to the World Health Organization Council on the Economics of Health for All and most recently was appointed to the UN Secretary General's High-Level Advisory Board on Effective Multilateralism. And she has an article at The Guardian, There is a global debt crisis coming and it won't stop at Sri Lanka. So what is the motive then of the lenders to get into a situation where they can't have their loans repaid? In the case of Sri Lanka now, we I think it's about $54 billion and you know, obviously, there's a t- tendency to blame the Rajapaska family, and and I think they could rightfully be, be blamed for vanity projects. And I don't know the extent to which they looted the country, but uh, there's certainly some some evidence there of corruption. But so I just don't understand, Jody, why the international lenders would take such risks that would inevitably lead to the situation now where don't they have to take a, a what they call a haircut in uh, Wall Street terms? Well, you know, the sad truth is that they haven't really had to do that in the past. Every time developing country governments have had these debt crises, somehow or the other, they have been forced to repay pretty much most of it. So, you know, while you regularly have haircuts and debt workouts and debt re- restructuring happening, within national credit markets and banks have to give up on a lot of their bad debt and so on. This has rarely happened for governments. It's really difficult because then the IMF steps in and all kinds of austerity measures are imposed and terrible conditionalities are imposed, which force the government to keep repaying. And so this has led to a terrible incentive structure where private investors feel that it'll be safe. So you have bond markets, you have pension funds, you have mutual funds, you have all kinds of people investing in all this developing country debt because they think sooner or later they will get repaid. Well, given uh, the dire situation in Sri Lanka, there's also a humanitarian component, is there not? And my sense is that while there's lots of talk about debt restructuring, I don't know that anybody much is stepping into the breach to deal with the humanitarian disaster in Sri Lanka. Apparently, India is. But China, who I think holds most of the debt or more than anybody else, they've sort of abandoned uh, Sri Lanka. Is that what's going on? Well, let's be clear about this. China is responsible for 10% of Sri Lanka's debt. Uh 10%. Okay. 
So it's the largest official creditor, but then there are others with 8%, 9% and so on. The biggest part, more than half of Sri Lanka's debt is held by private creditors. And most of those private creditors are financial companies based in the US. So what they're not telling you is that the biggest the agencies responsible for Sri Lanka's debt crisis are mostly US financial companies. They are not China. What China has done is actually agreed to reschedule a lot of debt. It's certainly not done enough. I'm not holding a brief for China. It's not done enough, but it hasn't actually been playing as bad a role as is projected a lot in the US. But in terms of the the immediate situation where people in Sri Lanka can't get food and gasoline and and important and needed supplies, who's stepping in to deal As with it? There's, there's very little. There's a little bit of money gone from India, relatively small. There's a little bit of money gone from some of the other China and some of the other BRICS. Uh, I think Russia is supplying on cheaper terms oil, which again is something that the West doesn't like very much. But Really, there's very little. But remember, Sri Lanka is not alone. There are countries in Africa that are already on the brink, facing extreme hunger and poverty increases and crisis. There are many poor countries, least developed countries, also facing crisis. It won't hit the headlines till they actually default. But these are also, I mean, there's a humanitarian, there's a desperate humanitarian crisis in many, many countries today. At least a billion, a trillion people. So in terms of then of some of the countries that at least in terms of default, and you're saying that there's a difference between default and what's happening in terms of the suffering in many of these countries, the list, of, of course, I mentioned Zambia earlier, but you, there's uh, Lebanon uh, and also Belarus apparently is on the brink of default, along with Egypt, Ghana, and Tunisia. Is that all of the list or is there more? No, you see, it really, once you get this kind of situation then you get what is called contagion in financial markets, that everybody says, oh my goodness, this is not safe, let me pull my money out. And so it's a bit like a bank run. You know, you get a domino effect, all kinds of countries get affected because capital leaves and flies back to safety, back to the US. And that's really what's happening. So many countries that don't necessarily have a debt problem today will end up with a debt problem simply because capital is going to move away. And now the U.S. raising interest rates is not helping. But why are financial markets and lenders so attracted to these poorer countries that you would think that they would be the last people you'd be lending money to if they can barely take care of their own people? I That's the part of it I don't understand. Is it is the mechanism such that you can make more money out of poor countries than you can out of rich countries? Is it that yes. crazy? Yes, the rate of return is much higher. So, you know, interest rates were so low in the US and Europe, less than 1%, right? Very, very low interest rates were the base rate. Most developing countries, precisely because they're seen as more risky, have much higher interest rates. I mean, in some countries, it's as high as 30, 40%. But in general, all the developing countries have much higher interest rates. And that is supposed to factor in the risk. So here's the conundrum. There are these lenders, private lenders, going to these countries, getting a higher return because it's more risky. And then when it when that risk translates into reality, when it does become a real possibility of default, then they go rushing to mama. They say, IMF, come and save us, make them repay. And that's really what's happening. So in other words, <laughs> does that mean that you and I pay? At the end of the day, I mean, where do the I IMF and the taxpayers all over the world pay? No, but it means mostly that the people of that country pay. Right. That they're already in a crisis, then the IMF comes in and says, "Oh, it's because you spent too much. Now you have to impose austerity." And so the government has to cut its spending, and the government cutting its spending basically means that you get even less public services, less basic social protection, less employment. So it's really the people of that country who pay. Right. So when you have all of these billionaires sitting around in hot tubs in Davos drinking expensive champagne and wringing their hands over the fate of the third world, is there any, any sort of sense that we can have a, a more honest regime here as opposed to 
worrying or, or fretting over a situation without actually dealing with with what you're telling us, uh, Jayadi, which is the the real structural problems here. Yeah, so here's the thing. I think enough people don't know. I think people in the United States, people in Europe, people in the developed world don't actually realize what's going on. They think that, oh, there are all these developing countries doing very well, not realizing that even in the ones that were doing well, like India supposedly doing well, the number of absolutely hungry people increased dramatically. I mean, even before this crisis, 72% of our population could not afford the FAO's minimum nutritious diet. So, and now we've had this crisis where things have got much, much worse. So we need much more awareness of the fact that it is not this country versus that country. It is about global capital versus everybody in the world. And it is about governments that are lobbied by global capital who then go in for policies and measures that only help global capital. Because listen, when these financial institutions get repaid, it's really lining the pockets of Wall Street. It's not affecting the average worker in the US. And the problem is that the average person in the US doesn't see this, doesn't realize that what they have to do is force a system change not just for debt restructuring, but for a whole lot of financial regulations that would prevent this kind of completely irresponsible behavior. Well, just to close then, there was a report from Oxfam fairly recently that suggested that in terms of global inequality, uh, which we're talking about, but the starkest statistics were that 85 families control half of the world's wealth. So it's, it's not just a question of the Wall Street lenders being predators, but there's also an incredible imbalance, isn't there, in terms of a kind of global oligarchy? It's almost like we're, we're going back to feudal times. It's a kleptocracy, for sure. And the trouble is that the richer they are, the more they are able to influence policy decisions of governments, which make them even richer. And so what we have to do is recognize this fact and fight that. Well, you have given us our marching orders, and I appreciate it, Jayadi Ghosh. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jayadi Ghosh, who is in India, where she and she has taught economics at the Nehru University in New Delhi for nearly 35 years. And since January of 2021, she's been the professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's authored 20 books, including The Making of a Catastrophe, COVID-19 in the Indian Economy, and When Governments Fail, COVID-19 and the Economy. And in 2021, she was appointed to the World Health Organization's Council on the Economics of Health for All, and most recently was appointed to the United Nations Secretary General's High-Level Advisory Board on Effective Multilateralism. And she has an article at The Guardian, There is a Global Debt Crisis Coming and It Won't Stop at Sri Lanka. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.